Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Catch all of the NCAA tournament at Walters on the 30-plus televisions available. Walters would also like to thank employee number 11 for his time with the Nationals. We couldn't have been represented by a more class act for the last 17 years, and we're excited to see what the future holds for the Zimmerman family. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I have to say, I am genuinely thrilled to be able to say that Major League Baseball's back and we're going to play 162 games. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, March 15th, 2022, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Major League Baseball is back, and so too now are installments of the Nats Chat podcast. We'll be pumping out an episode every so often as an abbreviated spring training season is going on. And then the regular season will begin, a post-game Nats podcast for the day after every Nats game. Nats will begin their 2022 regular season in just a few weeks, Thursday afternoon, April 7th, against the New York Mets at Nationals Park at 4.05. It is great to be with you. It is great to be talking baseball, actual baseball again. We have a lot of ground to cover. The Nats, over the last few days, a bunch of signings, including that of Nelson Cruz, who will be getting into all of the roster moves. Mike Rizzo on Sunday made news with his comments on Steven Strasburg and Joe Ross and Juan Soto. So, a lot to process, a lot to digest, but Mark, the lockout mercifully ended last week. The season is coming. It is nice to be with you, my friend. How are you? I have two words for you, Al. Thank God. I mean, really, it was getting to a point there that I don't know how much longer I could take it, <laughs> especially those last two weeks as we were having the ups and downs and the emotions of following along as the CBA negotiations. One moment you thought something was in, about to go down, then the next moment it looks like it's all going to blow up. And I'm just grateful that it's over. We don't even have to get into the CBA and who won and who didn't win and what it means. I think like most fans out there, and it's not to say this stuff wasn't important, not that it these aren't significant developments and they mean a lot to the players, to the owners, and to the future of the game. But I think we had certainly reached a point where 95% of the population out there was just like, just get a deal done, start the season, play 162, and thank God they did get that, and we will get 162. Yeah, there's who won, who lost, and who cares. And I think a lot of people fall into that third category. Two quick things for me on the CBA stuff. Number one, 
I think it's hysterical how all of the deadlines in these negotiations meant nothing, right? We had all of these declarations of, oh, we have to cancel the first batch of regular season games. Oh, now we have to cancel the second batch of regular season games. Good afternoon, everyone. I had hoped against hope that I would not have to have this particular press conference in which I am going to cancel some regular season games. No, you didn't. You're going to play 162 games. And the other thing is, all of these self-imposed deadlines, if there's not a deal by 5 p.m. this evening, then that's it. And then you would be following Twitter. Oh, no, they're negotiating past 5 p.m., well into the night. And it felt like that happened like 100 times. So all of these things that were said ended up being empty threats and empty promises. The other thing is, if you actually did follow the nitty gritty of the negotiations, what was being negotiated These weren't revolutionary things. You and I used to talk about how the players were going to try to take back team control years, right? And no longer have it be six years, maybe five years, maybe four years. That was off the table weeks ago. They were debating things like the competitive balance tax and the international draft. And I'm following this thing, Mark, and I'm like, will you guys just figure this out? This really isn't that big of a deal. This isn't that complicated. This whole thing took way longer than it needed to take. It did. What I'll say about this all is I think as we started this process, we knew that the players were asking for major change. They wanted significant change to the way the game's financial structure is put together. And they held out for a long time in search of that. And in the end, they got more money. There's no doubt about that. The minimum salary went up a considerable amount. You have this new pool for younger players. I mean, younger players are going to be paid more, no doubt about it. And I suppose the Mets and Dodgers are going to be allowed to spend more than they would have otherwise because of the CBT. But not a whole lot else really is that dramatically different. And I don't know there's going to be a whole lot else that fans are going to notice a difference over the next five years from a financial standpoint on the game. But I thought, to me, the most dramatic thing about all this, and honestly, I was not, I did not see this part of it coming, is that after all that holding out, You finally had, okay, here's our last best offer from MLB, at least for that point, last best offer. And the eight-man executive committee of the union, led by Max Scherzer, Andrew Miller, all of them, all the guys who were out in front of this from the beginning, voted it down unanimously, eight to nothing, except they were then overruled by the player reps from each of the 30 teams who take a poll of their membership and then submit a vote one per team, 26 to four. And so- For all that talk about, oh, the players are totally unified in this. You know what? The rank and file guys, the guys who got their minimum salary bumped up, the guys who need there to be 162 games, who could not afford to lose salary or service time this year, ultimately they made the call, not the significantly well-paid veteran guys who have been front and center and have been the face of this all along. I thought that was a fascinating development. And it does show you that it's not as simple as saying all players feel the same way about this, just as it's not as simple as all owners feel the same way. Of course, there are different factions, different groups of them have different priorities and opinions. I can't say I saw that one coming, but in some ways, I was kind of glad to see it, to know that the membership, the 1,200 members, actually did in the end have a say over the eight guys who were negotiating. Well, in terms of the actual baseball changes, via the new CBA. There are a few. Here are probably the two most prominent ones. A, expanded postseason. We go from a 10-team MLB postseason to now a 12-team MLB postseason. And B, universal designated hitter. 
I'm happy about that. I'm not sure that Mark is. But speaking of DH, if you're a National League team and you're about to embark on the first ever National League season with a full-time DH, why not acquire one of the greatest designated hitters in baseball history? That's a mammoth shot from Nelson Cruz. And in what has been a whirlwind of Major League Baseball moves over the last few days, the Nationals have done their part, a bunch of signings reported and official, and the most prominent of all of them, the Nationals agreeing on a contract with Nelson Cruz. The Nationals get themselves And I don't think I'm overstating this when I say this. One of the best designated hitters in Major League history. A guy who has been a high-level batter for years. A guy who is a power-hitting monster. A guy who, yes, is in his 40s, but is still more than capable. And a guy who, if things don't go well for the club, but go well for him, very clearly could be flipped for a prospect or prospects this summer. Mark, I love this move by the Nats. I know you were reporting on it potentially happening. I don't know a few days ago if we were thinking that this would happen, but I think this move makes a lot of sense. The Nats getting Nelson Cruz. All right. Now let me start with my, you know, I'll just say this once, then we don't have to go through it again. I am not a fan at all of the universal DH. I know I'm not alone in that regard. I know there are a lot of fans of traditional National League baseball. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. And you know what? You move on from it and you say, whether you agree with it or not, this is the way it's going to be now. And if that's the way it's going to be, then absolutely you go do what you need to do to adjust to these new rules. And I'm going to read you some numbers here for Nelson Cruz. You're talking about one of the best DHs of all time, 449 career home runs, 873 career OPS, 133 career OPS plus has been an above average hitter, way beyond an above average hitter, almost his entire career. And this was the one that I was actually a little bit shocked at the last nine seasons He has either been an all-star or received MVP votes. And the MVP votes, it's one, two, three, four, five times has been top 10 MVP votes. This is a guy who, he's not coasting the finish line. Like, this is who he's been since age 32. He's been that player. He had 32 homers last year at age 40. So this is absolutely, arguably the best power hitter they've ever had, or at least the most accomplished. I don't think the Nats have ever had anybody who already had more than 400 career home runs on their active roster. I don't think Adam Dunn was up to that point, anybody else like that. So this is a really, really accomplished hitter. And I knew they were interested in him. I knew they were also interested in some other guys. I kind of felt like the odds were a little slim because I figured he was going to have other offers with other contending teams that he would jump at. But as I actually thought about in the end, I can understand why this might've made more sense for Nelson Cruz to sign with the Nats than elsewhere. Number one, you're going to be hitting behind Juan Soto. That's going to make a big difference. Is there anybody in the sport you'd rather hit behind than Juan Soto? You're going to be hitting with runners on base all the time. Number two is even if the Nationals don't have a good season, even if they are out of it all along, then come July, they're probably going to trade him. This is going to be good for the Nationals because they're going to get legitimate prospects just like the Twins did last July. But now if you're Nelson Cruz, you're guaranteed to go play on a contender for the last two months of the season and maybe get to October. If he had decided right now who to sign with, say he was going to go to the Padres, who were one of the teams in the mix for him. Well, what if the Padres flame out? What if they don't make it? So in a bizarre way, by going to a rebuilding team, I think it might actually give Nelson Cruz a better chance of playing in the postseason than if he had just decided on his own where to sign beforehand. So there's a lot of reasons. I actually think this makes a ton of sense, both for the Nationals and for Nelson Cruz. 
What it means in terms of wins and losses for the Nats, I have no idea, but it's going to be a lot more fun. I think he's a great influence for Soto. I think it's going to make the heart of this lineup really dangerous. And even in a worst case scenario, I think they're going to benefit from it in the long term because of prospects they could get in return in a July trade. It is not a nothing contract. It's a one-year deal with a mutual option. Cruz is getting a $12 million salary for the 2022 season, then a $16 million mutual option or a $3 million buyout for the 2023 season. So he's guaranteed $15 million via this one-year deal with, again, a mutual option. But as we know, mutual options almost never end up being realized. He's going into his age 41 season. He, interestingly, you could argue, has peaked as he has gone into his 40s. You know, in this PED testing era, you don't normally see that. Now, there is a PED history with Nelson Cruz. He was a part of the biogenesis scandal close to 10 years ago, but he's also someone who is extremely well-regarded. Most of his teammates, ex-teammates, all say like glowing things about him. And to me, when it comes to the 2022 Nats, I think everything has to be viewed through the prism of the rebuild. The Nats aren't going to come out and say this, but the 2022 season is not about wins and losses. And if it happens to be that the Nats end up overachieving and end up having a good record and end up being in contention, then great. That'll be awesome. And we'll have a lot of fun with that. But in the meantime, you got to be thinking bigger picture. And for now, I think what you're really trying to do is add to your prospect inventory. The farm system is still not in great shape. You want to continue to add to that as the Nats added to that last year. And a guy like Nelson Cruz can help you do that. You're only committed to him for the one season. And like we just outlined, he is very much someone who could be flipped for a prospect or multiple prospects come this summer. I mean, you mentioned like the overall numbers. His last three seasons, he has an OPS plus of 152. I mean, who does that in their late 30s, early 40s? 152 OPS plus over his last three years. And it's not just Nelson Cruz. I really like this Steve Ciszek signing. The Nats getting free agent reliever Steve Ciszek, another one-year deal. And this is a total nothing deal, $1.75 million, uh, low cost, high upside. Relievers are always some of the easiest guys to flip for prospects come trade deadlines. Contenders always want bullpen help. And, you know, Ciszek wasn't necessarily great for the Angels this past season, but he certainly wasn't bad. He's a guy who doesn't give up home runs. And if you look at like over the last five, six years, he's actually been a pretty consistent reliever. So, I mean, again, if the Nats end up being good and Ciszek is a part of this revamp bullpen, great. But I think Steve Ciszek is another smart signing by Mike Rizzo and another guy who could potentially bring back a prospect or prospects this summer. Yeah, he is exactly the type of player I was expecting them to sign going into this. An experienced late-inning reliever who will help your bullpen, which, as we know, was a mess late last season, you know, just as a steadying force back there. And I don't know if he's going to close, but at the very minimum, he can set up for them a side-arming right-hander who, you know, has had success over his career in a way that a lot of relievers don't. We always talk about the volatility of relievers. He has had that year in and year out. And then, like you said, a perfect candidate to then be flipped in July. I don't think he'll be the last one. I think there are others that they could look in that regard. I still wouldn't be shocked if they end up with somebody who has a true closing resume to pitch for them. But before we go into those other guys, I want to go back to one other point about Nelson Cruz. You talk about everything has to be viewed within the prism of what's good for them long-term. Well, I'm going to put another reason out there why his signing is good for the long-term, because it's good for Juan Soto, okay? Juan Soto is thrilled to have Nelson Cruz on this team now. He's going to be a good influence for him in the clubhouse, of course, but just having that other bat makes a huge difference. And right now, if you're Mike Rizzo, there are 
two things that you're trying to do to ultimately keep Juan Soto in a Nationals uniform for a long time. Number one is going to be money. <laughs> we know they've already made him the first offer, and Rizzo also said the other day that they're going to continue. He's called his number one priority to resign him. He's our number one priority. But number two is you try to make him as happy as possible here. You do that by both winning, but also surrounding him with people he's going to enjoy and saying, this is a place I want to be. So to me, anything you can do between now and the end of the 2024 season that makes Juan Soto happy is good for this franchise long term. And that's another benefit, I think, of adding Nelson Cruz. Another significant addition here for the Nats in recent days is a guy who is going to address something that we talked about a bunch this past Nats season. If you are a regular listener of the Nats Chat podcast, you know we harped on this a ton, and I think justifiably so, but the lack of positional versatility on the Nats last year, the lack of position flex on the Nats last year. Well, the Nats have struck a deal with Mr. Position Flex in Major League Baseball right now. A. Ray Adrianza is coming to the Nats. On a sacrifice fly for A. Ray Adrianza and his 22nd run batted into the year. Going into his age 32 season, he spent this past season with the Atlanta Braves. Now, Adrianza is not a good hitter. You look at his recent offensive numbers, his career offensive numbers, uh, they're not pretty. But what this guy does have is a defensive versatility that is among the best in baseball. Like, find me a guy as versatile in terms of the positions he can play as A. Ray Adrianza is. A. Ray Adrianza has logged significant major league innings at shortstop, third base, second base, right field, left field, and first base. When I was a kid, the St. Louis Cardinals had a guy, Jose Akendo, and <laughs> Adrianza reminds me so much of Jose Akendo. So if nothing else, we won't have Alex Avila playing second base for the Nats in 2022. I know he's retired. That's not going to happen anyway, but I like this signing too. I mean, again, He's not going to hit 30 homers, okay? He's probably not going to have an on-base uh, anything above like 310, but the guy can play a bunch of different positions. And as we came to know last season, there's real value in that. Yeah, he takes the Josh Harrison role. And I know there were a lot of fans that were hoping that Harrison might come back. He wound up signing with the White Sox. I think where the Nats are at right now and what Harrison's looking for, that probably was unlikely to happen. So you do the next best thing. You get a guy who profiles similarly, not as good of a hitter like you outlined, but the ability to play all those positions and play them well, I do think is important. And I think you're seeing across the board, it's still hard to really know what we're looking at for a 26-man roster come opening day. There's a lot still that can change. And we're having kind of all this thrown at us at once after three months of nothing. But I think you're going to see a lot more flexibility, not just with Adrianza, but across the board with players. And I do think that is a, something that they've set out to do. I don't think it's by accident. They have that. Their infield could go one of a bunch of different directions right now. Second base, shortstop, third base. They have a bunch of guys who can play more than one of those positions. And now, as you said, you have Adrianza who can play those as well as the outfield. You have guys who could play multiple outfield positions. You even have a backup catcher who might be able to be a backup first baseman. There's a lot of different ways they can go with this. And I do think that was intentional. I don't know what that's ultimately going to look like, who's going to be where come April 7th, but it gives them options they didn't have in the past. And I think that was a uh, very calculated move on their part before the lockout, now certainly after. 
Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, not to put Adrianza on the level of Nelson Cruz, but that's another guy who maybe could be flipped come the trade deadline if you're a contender and you need someone with some defensive versatility. So I do like a lot of what Mike Rizzo has done so far. There also, though, is this theme to what the Nats have done in this uh, rush of free agent activity and also trade activity in Major League Baseball in recent days. So uh, the attempt to try to bring back every single member of the 2019 World Series championship, Nats, uh, this has almost become comical. Every day, it's somebody else who's being brought back. So the Nats have back on a major league contract, Sean Doolittle. He's been signed. Doolittle sets. He kicks, he delivers, and a swing and a fly ball left center field. Robles to his right on the run there. He's calling for it, and he makes the catch. And a curly W's in the books. The Nationals take game one of the 2019 World Series. And the Nats have back on minor league contracts. Gerardo Porra, the baby shark will not die. The baby shark will live forever, I feel like. And also, Anibal Sanchez, where did this come from? He didn't even pitch in the majors last year. And the last time we saw Anibal, and look, God bless Anibal. He was a hero in 2019. Here's the 0-2. Swing and a ground ball rolled to first. Zimmerman has it down to a knee. He'll step on first. Anibal Sanchez has tossed seven hitless shutout innings here at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. But things were not pretty for him in 2020. Uh, look, you can't get too worked up about, especially minor league deals for Gerardo Parra and Anibal Sanchez. There's no guarantee they even make the ball club. And minor league deals, like, take a shot, like, why the heck not? But what do you make of this? I mean, you know, the Nats are a rebuilding team. They've brought back Doolittle, Parra, and Sanchez. They've signed a 40-something in Nelson Cruz. They've brought in another veteran in Steve Ciszek. I mean, I used to joke with you last year how Mike Rizzo must love to watch the Golden Girls, like with all of these older players he's constantly acquiring. I guess that love for the older player has not gone away, man. You just Rizzo just can't quit the older baseball player, at least not yet. Yeah, I think um, Doolittle's new walk-in song from uh, the right field bullpen is going to be Thank You for Being a Friend. We can break them down individually, but let me speak to a larger point here, and I wrote about this for MassInSports.com. Again, I think there's a calculated move here to bring in veterans who are known for their clubhouse presence. Now, you can argue over the true value of that or not, and whether that means anything in terms of on-the-field wins and losses, but one thing I certainly noticed was that by the end of last season, when you have a totally stripped-down roster from what it was prior to that point, and there's a lot of inexperience in there. And there's not a lot of, frankly, leadership, guys who've been there and done that. You add Ryan Zimmerman retiring. You have now Max Scherzer gone. I think it was a void. And when you are now counting on young guys like Juan Soto and Cabert Ruiz and Josiah Gray, Luis Garcia, as the future of the organization, they need somebody to show them how it's done. It's really important to have that. So I think there's, a, again, a calculated move on the Nationals' part to bring in players who might help them on the field, but more than that, are going to make a difference off the field in teaching the young guys the right way to go about this. And each of those is going to do it in a different way. Now, in Doolittle's case, it's a major league contract. I'm a little surprised by that, but they must feel like there's something there. Now, the numbers weren't great last year for him in Cincinnati and Seattle, but the velocity was back up on his fastball. That was the real concern when he left here, was that he had lost a ton of fastball velocity, and that's his pitch. So if they think that there is something there, let's also remember they had no experienced lefties in the bullpen, none. So they're not going to make him their closer, of course. But if he's a guy who can face a few lefties 
get some outs, show that he can throw strikes again, and be a good influence for the younger guys in the bullpen, then by all means, go for it. The other two, you're taking a flyer on them because they're minor league contracts. So like you said, there's no guarantee that Anabel Sanchez and Gerardo Parr make the opening day roster. I'd be stunned if they both do. I might even be stunned if either of them does. But at least in Sanchez's case, you have a rotation that has a lot of question marks on it. And if he is healthy and able to throw strikes, he's got a rubber arm. We know that. See what you got spring training. If it doesn't work out, no harm, no foul. If it does and they have an opening, then by all means, give it a shot. See what you got. Para's case, it's going to be tougher because they have outfield depth. That's not really an issue for them. But we know the influence that he has everywhere. And again, it's low risk, no harm. If you get to the end of spring training and he doesn't have it, maybe he reports to AAA. Maybe you just say it's time to move on. Maybe he becomes a uh, instructor in some way for them without actually being an active player. So be it. But I don't have a problem with those moves. And like I said, I think it's in those cases even more to do with what they bring off the field than what they bring on the field. Nats also have struck a minor league deal with Aaron Sanchez. Aaron Sanchez is an interesting guy. He was a first-round pick of Toronto in 2010. He, at one point, was a really good pitcher. 2016 regular season, Aaron Sanchez was number one among qualified pitchers in the American League in ERA, but uh, Aaron Sanchez's career really has fallen apart in recent years. He, in September 2019, underwent right shoulder surgery. Again, minor league deal. Again, just taking a shot at a guy, taking a flyer on a guy, and uh, just see what sticks. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Winter is almost in our rear view mirror, and in a few weeks when we are feeling the rush of spring air arriving, Window Nation will be feeling the rush of homeowners calling for new replacement windows. The thing is, if you call now and beat the rush, you'll get special spring savings. Enjoy energy savings sooner, all while upgrading the look and feel of your home. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and get two free windows for every two that you buy. Plus, you'll make no down payment, make no payments, and pay no interest for 24 months. And what makes that deal even more amazing is that your Window Nation windows are specifically designed for our climate. You know, they say that March comes in like a lion, goes out like a lamb, and with wild swings in temperatures, will your home stay comfortable? Well, with Window Nation, the answer is yes. With Window Nation windows, you get custom-crafted quality Ultra Energy Star windows installed from installers who have installed over a million windows. Get two free windows with every two that you buy, no limit, plus no payments for two full years. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The one thing I could say is, is the circulatory problems are you know, no longer with us. So that, that's a good thing. That was the, that was the main reason for, for the surgery. You know, we don't have a whole lot of knowledge on pitchers with that the thoracic outlet surgery, but I do know that he looks in great shape and he feels good with his throwing program. He's on pace. So, uh, but yeah, you, you know, you're, you're right. You never know until you let it, let it loose for, you know, 32 starts to see, to see where you're at health wise, but he looks good and he feels good. He feels confident. And, uh, and you know, the, the good thing is he's, you know, he's in spring training, preparing for the season and not in a rehabilitation mode. So that's a good thing. You mentioned there being many questions for the Nationals rotation. We knew that that was the case uh, weeks ago, months ago, but we now have an even larger question regarding the Nationals rotation. So Mike Rizzo spoke to reporters for like 20 plus minutes on Sunday, and there were a bunch of significant things that Mike said. I would say the three biggest things, though, had to do with Steven Strasburg, Joe Ross, and Juan Soto. With Steven Strasburg, so we obviously have him coming off this super serious season-ending surgery to address neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. He underwent the surgery last July 28th. This is a very serious ailment for pitchers. This has been like a death sentence for pitchers in recent years. I think if you're Strasburg, you would have rather have undergone a second Tommy John surgery than you would have had to deal with TOS. But at least from what Rizzo said, it sounds like things are going pretty well and that he's not hindered in camp. Now, it's funny, Mark, because I read the quotes and then I listened to the audio. I did not think the audio came off as promising as the reading of the quotes did. Rizzo, I don't want to say that he sounded unsure, but this was not like a bullish, forceful Mike Rizzo in saying that, you know, Strasburg was doing well and was not going to be hindered in camp. But you know, the overall message, I thought, was pretty encouraging. But what did you make of what Mike said on Sunday about Strasburg? So I think the two key points here are, first, and this is a thing that Rizzo said, is that he's not in rehab mode. He's in normal spring training prep mode for the season. That's good. We didn't know that for sure, if that was going to be the case. So he's not being held back in any way. If any pitchers out there preparing for the season at Nats camp, they're going to be doing the exact same thing that Strasburg is. So that's good. But I think the other point here, and, and Riz sort of alluded to this, and this might be where you were picking up on that little bit of a question, which is, okay, he's feeling healthy and he's not having any arm issues. But when it comes to this particular surgery and coming back from it, it's not necessarily the guys come back and their arms hurt or their shoulders hurt or like they're in physical pain. It's a question of, do they get back the same style of pitching that they had before it? You know, Matt Harvey has pitched for the last couple of years, but he's not anywhere close to the same pitcher that he was before all these injuries. So I think the real question here, and we just won't know the answer to this until he takes the mound, is what does this look like from a pitching standpoint? What is the velocity? What is the command? What is just the effectiveness of his pitches? And until he's facing in another team on the mound and throwing X number of pitches, and then five days later, taking them out again and throwing X number of pitches again. And then honestly, not till he's doing it in the regular season when it really counts and he's building up to close to hundred pitches. I don't think there's any way really to know what this is going to look like. So far, so good. All the signs are encouraging. He's scheduled to throw to live hitters. 
on Tuesday. So that's the first kind of clue of how everything's playing. But for me with Strasburg, I would have said this even prior to all these injuries, but especially right now, you don't really know until you see him do it and then you see him do it again in game situations. And we're just not there yet. It's been a lot of mystery with Steven Strasburg. I mean, he's kind of a mysterious guy to begin with, but he still has yet to speak publicly since all of this happened. But again, he underwent the surgery on July 28th. He dealt with a bunch of injury last season. He only made five starts the entire regular season. And, you know, obviously we just had the lockout, so you weren't hearing anything then about Strasburg. I mean, if you're a Nats fan, he's almost become like a ghost where you're like, Oh, yeah, Strasburg. What happened to him? And oh, yeah, you know, this injury. How's he doing? So, you know, we certainly are hoping for the best. I think if you are the Nats, you don't count on anything from him this year. And so if you get anything from him, that's wonderful. But I just don't think you can look at him as like, well, if Steven Strasburg holds up, then the Nats rotation will be better this season. He's not coming off like a high ankle sprain. He's not coming off like shoulder inflammation. Like he's coming off maybe the single worst pitching injury a pitcher can incur right now. So, yeah, I mean, any news is good news. Like it's better that Mike said what he said on Sunday than, you know, he said, oh my gosh, this guy's dealing with something else, as was the case with Joe Ross. I mean, man, can Joe Ross catch a break? So remember with Joe Ross, his 2021 season ended because it was revealed that he had a partial tear of his right UCL. Now, there was semi-good news regarding that and that Davey Martinez this past August 17th said, hey, you know what? Joe Ross actually doesn't need a second Tommy John surgery, at least right now. Joe went and saw Dr. Meister, and um, as of right now, he's not going to need surgery. He said it's basically a, a sprain. So he said, okay, rehab, rest, maybe Ross can be good to go for the 2022 season. Well, out of nowhere, We get news on Sunday that Joe Ross recently underwent arthroscopic surgery to clean up the right elbow, to remove a bone spur in his right elbow. He had the surgery on March 7th, so he was well into his throwing program. He he felt good. And then when he he felt a little tingle in there, we obviously went right right to the MRI and they found, you know, kind of feeling a little bit of relief that it was it was this bone spur on the tip of his elbow that was making him feel uncomfortable. And he's now expected to miss six to eight weeks. So the same elbow in which he has this partial tear of the UCL, it turned out that he also had a bone spur that needed to be removed. Everyone knows that Joe Ross has a substantial injury history. I mean, you really feel for the guy. It feels like it's one thing after another. And I mean, I know we've had conversations in the past about, well, How do you view Joe Ross? What can you count on from Joe Ross? A lot of that had to do with his inconsistency on the mound. Now, from just a health standpoint, Mark, Joe Ross, who was already a big question mark, even more so with this uh, surgery news that we got on Sunday. Yeah. So my understanding, the timeline of how this all worked out is, uh, like you said, he got the go, the all clear, as it were, late last season that, yes, he had this partial tear, but he shut himself down, rested, rehabbed over the winter. He could avoid the surgery and then come this spring, start to throw, see how it felt. Now, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if he experiences elbow pain along the way as he's getting ready for spring training, they may go in there and say, okay, you know what? He actually does need the Tommy John again. So in my mind, I really wasn't counting on anything with him. I was almost in some ways expecting there to be some kind of negative news. So what happens is he's ramping up throughout the winter. Now, again, remember the teams aren't in contact with their players during the lockout. So I don't know how much they really know about this, but based on what Rizzo said, things were starting to go well. And then it was only within the last 10 days, two weeks or so, as he was ramping up that he said he finally felt 
pain in his elbow or felt something wasn't right. So they sent him to get an MRI. And understandably, given all that background I just provided, there was a lot of fear that they were going to discover, you know what, the UCL is actually torn. He needs to have the Tommy John. He's out for the year. And who knows what that means for his career. So in some ways, they were a little bit relieved to hear that it's a bone spur that could be cleaned up with arthroscopic surgery, far less severe, far less time to recover from it. But the state of that elbow is obviously not 100%. And it's six to eight weeks. Then he starts building up again. It's going to be a while until we can even consider that. And then whenever it is that he's cleared to start the throwing program again and resume and pitch off a mound and all that, there's still going to be the underlying question about the structure of his elbow. So look, for Joe's sake, for everyone's sake, I hope he comes out of all this healthy and able to pitch and still contribute for them. He's worked really hard over the course of his career to finally get a chance to do that. But if anybody at this point is counting on that happening, I think they're being naive. We'll see. But I think it's not a coincidence that some of these other moves you just mentioned, the two Sanchez's in particular, are made after they know that Joe Ross is out at least for a while. That probably tells you where their mindset's at in terms of when and if Joe Ross is going to be pitching for them. It's crazy, but the biggest certainty, and I put certainty in quotation marks with this Nats rotation, may be Josiah Gray when you consider where Strasburg is at where Ross is at. Patrick Corbin is trying to bounce back from back-to-back terrible seasons. Eric Fetty, I don't need to say anything more. Like, you know, you just don't know with him. You know, not that Josiah Gray is some slam dunk definitive, but I don't know. That might be like the surest thing you have right now in this rotation. It's a frightening thought. We know that the Nats rotation last year, especially after trading away Max Scherzer, was a real problem. Things, at least right now, don't look great. I actually think the Nats offense could be just fine this season as it was last season after the sell-off, but the pitching right now does not appear to be in anything close to great shape. Yeah, I agree. I think the lineup is pretty solid at the moment, and there still could be more moves to come from that regard. And I think the bullpen is getting better. I think there's still a lot of question marks there, but it is better than it was at the end of the season. The rotation Like you said, there really isn't a sure thing. I mean, if we're going to call Josiah Gray a sure thing, okay, but that's kind of a leap of faith in itself. I mean, I think we know Patrick Corbin's healthy, so at least there's that. But until we see what that looks like on the mound in terms of actual success, I don't think you're going to get too excited about that. So is there potential for the rotation to be much improved if Strasburg's healthy, if Corbin can rediscover old form, if Josiah Gray takes the next big step, and if one of these other guys steps up and is something to ensure. But that's a whole lot of what ifs and a whole lot of hopings for things that right now you can't say. And it's such a dramatic departure from what we've known for the better part of the last decade around here. I was thinking about this. Most years, the Nationals would go into spring training and not even have a competition for the fifth starters job. I know we joked the last year or two about Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, Austin Voth, but that was really the only one. And there were plenty of years where even the fifth starter was set in stone. Right now, it is such a stark difference from what they've been for so long that it's almost hard to remember what they used to be. And it does remind you that above all else, that's what's going to determine the fate of this season. We can talk about the lineup being improved, the bullpen being improved. We can talk about prospects and all that. If we're strictly talking wins and losses for the 2022 Nationals, I think the number one determining factor in that is going to be what is the effectiveness of the rotation. And right now, I think it's impossible to know how effective it's going to be. 
It is worth saying the Nats have announced among their 2022 non-roster invitees to spring training, Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge. Now, I don't think that people are counting on those guys breaking camp with the Nats and being with the Nats for the start of the regular season. But, I mean, this only further heightens the importance of these guys developing and coming through and, you know, hopefully at least with Cavalli. I mean, I know Rutledge didn't have a great year last year, but hopefully you can really start to feel it with Cavalli and maybe even see him make his major league debut this coming season. But I mean, this was already key that these guys and some of the other promising pitchers in the farm system come through. You cannot emphasize that enough if you're a Nationals fan. The screaming need for the Cavallis and the Rutledges and, you know, the Cole Henrys to convert on their potential. Yeah, that's going to be the determining factor of when the Nats are a contending team again. When does the young pitching arrive and when does it make a difference? They've got some pieces in place elsewhere, but that's the one that's really more of the long-term project. So Cavalli and Rutledge are going to get looks probably early in camp. I mean, I think we're going to see them pitching in some of these early Grapefruit League games because they've actually been there and able to start building up faster than others. It's going to be a weird situation. You've got only four days of official workouts before the exhibition season starts, and then it's only 16 exhibition games. So it's not a lot of time. And early on, they're going to have to put probably some kids out there who aren't as much in the mix just because they're able to give you two or three innings right now. So I'm interested to see that. How do they look? What are the reports on them? I don't think they're making the opening day roster, but Cavalli certainly is going to be very much in the picture at some point this summer. Rutledge has a little further to go given the background, the younger age and all that. And then one other name, Cole Henry, who a lot of people have been high on, and I do think is going to be part of this here at some point, Davey Martinez said he's probably the only pitcher in camp who is being held back a little bit. And that's because of injuries in the past, workload having not been what others are in the past. So they're monitoring him for that. I don't think there's any significant concern there. It's just evidence that they're going to slow play it with him as somebody who I think we're going to see eventually, but is not quite there yet. And so, you know, not somebody who's going to be in a big league rotation in April or May, I doubt. Yeah. One thing regarding all of this, just in case people don't know, the new CBA does still have the provision allowing for a team to hold a prospect out of the majors for a few weeks in order to guarantee that extra season of team control go from six to seven seasons. But the CBA has an interesting twist on all of this. If a player finishes first or second in rookie of the year voting, that player will get credit for a full year of service time, regardless of when that player came up that year. So in other words, if the Nats waited until, say, May to call up Cade Cavalli in order to get that extra year of team control, and Cavalli killed it and finished in the top two of the National League Rookie of the Year voting, he would get credit for a full year of service time, and the Nats would not get that extra year of team control. So just something to think about if you're wondering about, well, should the Nats strategically wait on calling up uh, any of these stud pitchers? Yeah. So I think the key here is that what that's going to do is it's going to make sure that players are called up when they're truly ready, not for other reasons that an organization might have. In Kate Cavalli's case, they're going to call him up when they believe he's ready, whether that's April, May, June, July, whenever that is. I think it's going to be a little bit down the road. They want to see him have success at AAA, probably want to monitor his innings as well in a AAA environment where you could hold him to five innings per game, something like that. As a BBWA voter, I'm a little bit uneasy about the idea that our votes now are going to determine players' service time and salaries. I'm a little bit uneasy about that. We'll see how that works out in the end. But from a competitive standpoint, I do like the fact that teams are incentivized a little bit more to call up guys when they're truly ready and not hold them back just for service time reasons. 
Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. We're going to attack a deal with Juan Soto. He said this is his team. He's the face of the franchise and... Uh, I want him here for the long term, so we're we're going to uh, we're going to continue to talk and uh, and and try and make him a Nat for a long time. Ain't nobody worried about who is the best player on the Nats, and when we talk about you know the offense potentially being a bright spot for the Nats as it was again post the sell off last year, the guy who of course leads that charge is Juan Soto, and Mike Rizzo on Sunday did hit on the Juan Soto contract situation, so. Most people by now are familiar with the mechanics of this in case you're not. So Soto's going into his age 23 season. He's not due to be a free agent until after the 2024 season. So the Nats still have three years of team control on Juan Soto. But as we know, you need to extend a superstar like Juan Soto sooner rather than later. His agent is Scott Boris. It's already been talked about a bunch how, you know, Soto is a guy who may well just be playing things out until free agency. It was on February 16th that we got those reports that Soto, prior to the start of the lockout on December 2nd, turned down a contract extension offer from the Nats. The offer was a 13-year, $350 million contract extension offer with no deferred money. Well, Mike Rizzo on Sunday addressed the Juan Soto contract situation, essentially confirmed the offer. I mean, he, he in no way said that that wasn't true or that the numbers were off. I mean, he didn't get asked about the numbers, but he, he certainly could have put out his messaging on that offer. He really did not. We made the offer really right before we couldn't talk to him anymore. So uh, there really wasn't a lot of dialogue after, after because there wasn't much, there wasn't any time. We made an offer and all of a sudden the lockout happened and uh, we didn't have much dialogue after that. But Mike Rizzo spoke in a pretty glowing way regarding Juan Soto, talked about Soto being the Nats' number one priority, talked about the Nats being Soto's team, talked about Soto being the face of the franchise. Now, look, these are just words. Uh, Ultimately, money is going to get a deal done, not words. And ultimately, money may not even be enough to get a deal done. It may just be that Soto and Boris are intent on Soto reaching free agency. But I did think it was interesting, Mark. I mean, Rizzo did not shy from talking up Soto, did not shy from talking up the importance of trying to lock up Juan Soto. I mean, again, he called Juan Soto the Nats' number one priority, a guy who's not due to be a free agent for another three years. What did you think about not so much what Rizzo said, but maybe how Rizzo said what he said on Sunday? Agreed. I thought that was the most telling thing. Look, this isn't the first time that we've all been asking Mike Rizzo on the first day of spring training about a star player who may have a contract coming up in the next couple of years. And I thought the tone of this one was different than ones from the past. I was a little surprised at how forthcoming he was. It's not usually his style to acknowledge not just that they had previously made an offer, but that they intend to start this up again soon. 
and to call it priority number one, I thought that was really telling. Now, I don't know what it leads to, but I think at least publicly it's showing that Mike Rizzo is pushing to not just sit back and say, okay, well, we already made him that first offer, so we'll revisit it in another year. Like, no, he wants to keep hammering away at it right now. And so, like I said earlier, the two things that if you're Mike Rizzo, you can do to help yourself in this regard is number one, you throw a lot of money his way. They've started that process, but there's probably more money they could send his way and offer him as well. And then number two, you can do everything else possible to surround Soto with players that he likes and a team that he likes, and hopefully a team that eventually wins before that time comes that he's going to be a free agent. And now you've helped convince him, hey, maybe this is the place that I want to stay. I still believe, knowing him, knowing his agent and how this usually works, that it's going to behoove him to wait this out and not just jump on a deal right now. But in maybe a little cosmic twist of things, did you see the news about Fernando Tatis Jr.? Broke his wrist. He's out for a while. May have done it riding a motorcycle during the offseason. We always, the last couple of years, we've talked about comparing Soto and Tatis and the fact that Tatis took that monster deal very early in his career. And I've reported, and I think I've mentioned this, that I've had people close to Soto tell me that they don't think he would take that same offer that was presented to him. And as it turns out, he basically turned down a comparable offer because the system is set up to benefit you down the road. If you just wait it out, you're going to get more through arbitration, set a higher bar for yourself, come free agency, and of course, have 30 teams bidding on you instead of just one. But I do wonder, when you see guys like Tatis get hurt like this, if you're Juan Soto, you're saying, you're always one freak accident away from something bad happening that could upset your career in some way. And if you want to be sure that you are set for life financially, do you want to take that risk? I don't think that's going to change his mind. Let me be honest on that. I don't think it will. But it maybe at least plants a seed in the back of your mind every time something like that happens to say, well, maybe at least let me consider this, whether there is a number that I would take right now because of that risk of the unknown of you know, what could happen between now and 2024. Well, if you are familiar with the WWF legend, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, he had a phrase, <laughs> everybody has a price. It's like I've been telling you for a couple of weeks now. Everybody's got a price. I think there is a number. Everybody has a number, okay? So there is a number for Soto. Now, I think that number at least starts with a four. Maybe it starts with a five. Who the heck knows? What I'm interested to see is, do the Nats get to that level of an offer? Because I think we all would agree, the offer that the Nats made to Soto was a nice offer. It was a legitimate offer, but it was an offer that was never going to get a deal done. And I think that the Nats deep down inside knew that. Now, maybe it was just the first salvo in a series of offers, right? Like, so you got to see what comes next. But if the Nats never get to an offer that starts with a four, then I think you know that deep down inside, the Nats were never really wanting to give him a contract like that. And as we've discussed, I think there is an argument to be made that a team should never give a player that kind of a contract just because the frequency with which these big money deals work out in baseball is just so small that they just don't tend to work out. I think Soto is a guy who you make an exception for, but I think that's going to be the ultimate tell. Like Rizzo can say whatever he wants. They can sign guys who make Soto happy, et cetera, et cetera. But if you never make him an offer that starts with a four, i.e., you know, 13 years, $400 million, 15 years, $430 million, that kind of a thing, then I think that's going to tell you everything that you need to know. And again, if the philosophy is, especially off this disastrous Steven Strasburg contract, we as an organization are not doing deals like that anymore. I actually can respect that, but the actions are going to speak because I think there is a number that'll get Soto to say yes. It's just a really high number, and it's a question of are the Nats, are the learners truly willing to go to that number? 
So, I mean, you put your money where your mouth is. That's basically what this is. They can talk it up all they want. At some point, there needs to be a, a dollar figure out there. Now, the danger, though, from that is, especially when you're still three years away from him being a free agent, if you, let's even go way beyond that. Let's say they offered him $500 million right now. Well, if you're Soto yet, you say, okay, there's the number. I'll take it. But you could also say, okay, you know what? If it gets out that they're already offering me $500 million now, then the bar was just set for everybody three years from now. And you can't possibly offer him less than that, right? So it can hurt the Nationals from a competitive standpoint if that got out, if they set the bar so high that he then turns it down and now you're stuck and your only hope is going above it or waiting to see if anyone else will go above it three years down the road. So it's an interesting negotiating game that they have to play. And I would bet, knowing them in particular, that they would prefer that none of this gets out that they were probably surprised that the terms of that first offer got out. I think they would rather not get out because the last thing you want is for everybody else in baseball to know how much they're offering Juan Soto because you just told Steve Cohen and Mark Walter and Hal Steinbrenner how much more they need to offer to get Juan Soto. And in all those cases, they would probably be willing to do it. Yeah. I think, though, if you care about the PR, and I don't know how much the learners do, but if you do, then I think you do want it out there that you're trying. And especially if you do make that gargantuan offer of $400 million, you know, maybe even $500 million, and Soto says no, then all of a sudden Soto, who very clearly is the quote-unquote good guy in the situation, right? Everybody's behind Soto. All of a sudden, he becomes the heel. If he turns down $400 plus million, no reasonable Nationals fan could say, oh, well, the learners, they, they were cheap. They didn't try to resign. No, they tried, okay? So I think in that regard, if you're the Nats, you might actually want those offers out there. But again, I don't know how much they care about the PR aspect of this. So there are a lot of layers to this Juan Soto situation. There's the baseball, there's the money, there's the PR, there's a lot of stuff like that. So we shall see. We have plenty of time to chew on this Juan Soto situation. It's probably not going to be resolved anytime soon. We always enjoy hearing from you on everything and anything that we discuss on the Nats Chat Podcast. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Do not forget, we offer t-shirts. We have our Secret Weapon t-shirt. We have our OG Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. You can get your shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. That's NatsChatPodcast.square.site. We are going to have a new t-shirt at some point for the 2022 national season. We're going to have to figure out a theme, a look. I don't know. Do we want to go with an Anibal Sanchez theme shirt, Mark? We got to figure something out for 2022. Well, let's first see who's on the team, Al, before we <laughs> declare and also see, you know, would anyone have imagined at this time last year that we'd be talking about making a t-shirt over Palo Espino? No. So let's see who is that guy. We don't know. That's the beauty of this. We don't know who the next secret weapon is going to be that merits his own t-shirt. I think I want an A. Ray Adrianza t-shirt. I want to go on record right now and declare that. That first name is so unique. Maybe we'll do the phonetically spelled A. Ray Adrianza <laughs> instead of the actual spelling. We're going to have to for sure. If you would not mind, and if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you have never done that. You also can now rate podcasts on Spotify. So if you're listening on Spotify, please give the Nats Chat podcast a five-star rating on Spotify and uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts, you're allowed to write like these reviews of the podcast. If you could just write like a brief one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast, that's much appreciated. Advertisers look at the ratings and the reviews, so these things 
do help to make the podcast successful. But we thank everyone for listening. We thank everyone for downloading, for subscribing. Certainly spread the word if you know of a Nationals fan who is looking for more discussion, better discussion about the team. Let that person know we are with you after every Nationals game this upcoming season. And like I said, uh, near the top of the show, we'll be coming at you intermittently here with uh, installments of the Nats Chat podcast as this abbreviated and uh, rushed installment of National Spring Training rolls along. So for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. Smith, the lefty sets. Runners lead first and second to pitch. Swing and a line drive into center field. A base hit. Robles to third. It gets by. Punch into the wall. Robles coming in to score. And an opening day. Curly W is in the books. They're mobbing one Soto out there. Second base. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.